Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Because no two people sleep the same. Only the Sleep Number Smart Bed lets you each choose your individual firmness and comfort your Sleep Number setting. The Climate 360 Smart Bed is so smart, it actively cools or warms up to 13 degrees on either side for your ideal sleep temperature. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, plus free home delivery when you add an adjustable base. Ends Monday. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. On this episode, I transparently talk with Vanessa Bennett, a licensed marriage and family therapist, about tangible ways to stop blaming others and how to take ownership of your own self. And again, this is me, in a way, really pushing against this, what I see as a very codependent way of being in relationships. The only thing that you can be responsible for is yourself, right? Period. Hard stop. Hi, and welcome to the Parentologist Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kim. The Parentologist Podcast is a show about everything parenting with a therapeutic twist. Each episode focuses on a variety of relatable topics, including parenting, family, children, relationships, mental health, and pop culture. Hear from a variety of medical professionals, psychological experts, authors, celebrities, and other parents with inspiring stories. You'll feel like you're in the same room with your friends getting all of your questions answered. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll learn, and you'll have fun. Hello, Vanessa. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you again for having me. I'm really excited to dive in um, with you. I know you just came out with a book uh, about a a couple weeks ago, maybe, Mm -hmm. um, less than a month ago. It's called It's Not Me, It's You, Break the Blame Cycle, Relationship Better. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just the title alone is like, boom, (laughs) just kind of hits you in the face, you know, in whatever relationship you're in, you know, uh, I think there's just so much that happens in a relationship and it can go sour real quick, you know, Um and I just feel like there's a lot of things we can dive into today. So I can't wait to read it. I've only read excerpts of it so far, um, but I, I have it in my Amazon cart. I am ready to read it um, <laughs> because, you know, even um, like yourself, I am a licensed marriage family therapist and my husband is also a licensed marriage family therapist. And we have all the tools that we've learned in school and even in our practices. And sometimes our marriage still fails. It yeah. still is broken. And I'm sure other people can relate to and people think, oh, you must have the best marriage because you're both therapists and you both, you know, know what you're supposed to do. But sometimes even when you have the tools, it's hard to use them. Do you relate to that even on a personal level and also on a professional level? Do you see that in your practice often? Yeah, I think that was part of why we wrote the book together because this is my partner's fourth book. So it wasn't like it was our you know, it was my first book, but it wasn't like it was the first book out the gate. The reason why we wrote it as a team. I mean, there was a lot of reasons, but one of them was really to try to break down this misconception that we have about therapists, that they have their shit together. Exactly. (laughs) Hallelujah to that. We're just as screwed up as you are. (laughs) Um, You know, but really, you're right. I mean, people, I think they look to us as if we are the quote unquote expert. And 
Do we have the knowledge and the skills and the background? Yes, but we are still human and we are still flawed. Um, and I think it was really important for us to kind of pull that curtain back and humanize ourselves because so often when, whether it's a therapist or a doctor or a politician or whoever it is that we kind of put on this pedestal of like the expert, many times that just makes us feel like we are failing, like there's something wrong with us, right? Like, why can't I do it like they do? First and foremost, we all know social media is a lie. What you see on social media is a very small portion of reality, right? Exactly. Um, and so many of us think that that's the truth, the, the whole truth, and it's not. And so, you know, we... And I have actually found in the last few years, not just working with um, individual clients and couples in my practice, but also leading groups, teaching classes, um, what I have, I guess, discovered is the word I'm thinking of is how much more powerful and impactful the work can be and the change can be when you as the clinician are humanizing yourself and talking from your own experience um, and talking, John likes to say, coming with you instead of at you. And that, when I did that, and I, you know this because this is how you were trained too, we are trained to be like the quote unquote blank slate, right? Like right. that is what so many therapy programs teach you to do. It's like the reminiscent of the very Freudian, very patriarchal way of doing therapy, right? Again, I am the expert you are the patient. Uh, there is something wrong with you. I'm not going to give you anything about myself, right? And that is not how we heal. That is not how we heal. That is a very wounded masculine way to look at healing, right? The more feminine, the more inclusive way of looking at healing would be done in group. It would be done in connection with other, right? It's done through a mirroring of yourself through somebody else, right? Somebody telling you that you're amazing and here's what I see in you. Um, somebody saying to you, I went through something similar so I can empathize. And so it's really altered the way. I mean, granted, I don't make it all about myself in, in in sessions, but it's really altered the way that I show up as a therapist. And I think we've actually seen a lot of that since COVID. This like rise of the quote unquote Instagram therapist is a lot of that. I think we're actually pushing back on that that I think unhealthy way of looking at therapists and therapy. Exactly. I do think there's so much value in sharing parts of our own stories, like you said, to show empathy and also to say, I've been there. Mm -hmm. I get it. And I'm not perfect. Just because I'm in this role or in this position doesn't mean I know it all. I'm still learning as I grow too. I'm mm -hmm. human and I'm still growing as an individual, growing as part of a couple, growing as a mom, you know, mm -hmm. all these things that I'm growing in. And, you know, to expect otherwise is ludicrous, really. It's the first mm -hmm. word that comes to my mind because it's it's not possible. Like, you know, like you said, with social media, there's clips on there of our lives that may have happened, but may not necessarily be true. I mean, there's things I've posted on there. I'll be quite frank yeah. and honest that, you know, our whole family sitting there smiling when five minutes before my husband and I were in a fight and my kids were crying and I'm like, Melting just smile for the picture. And... <laughs> <laughs> just yep. smile so we can go home, please. Yep. <laughs> you know, and, but people don't see that behind the scenes. And a lot of times we don't want to show that side of us mm -hmm. because it makes us too vulnerable. It makes other people judge us, even if they've been in the same spot before. Even right. if they were fighting with their spouse and their kids were crying five minutes before a picture they took, they still judge us, mm -hmm. you know, as the other individual. And like you said, there's a lot of blame out there for lots of things, lots of judgment, and people aren't taking ownership or responsibility for themselves and their own behaviors, their own actions. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Where do you think that 
focal blaming comes from and why it's so hard to just be humble and take ownership and responsibility for ourselves. Yeah. I mean, I think you would probably agree with this that the, I mean, I know you specialize in in kids. Well, actually I was going to say that it's more in couples, but as somebody who also used to work with kids as part of my training, the number of times you would have kids come in to work with you as a therapist and you would be like, okay, we need to do family therapy right? Because more (laughs) often than not, when there's quote unquote behavioral issues in a child, they're just acting out of the system that they live in, right? And usually the parents are like, no, 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 no. Fix my kid. Yep. It's all about my kid. It's not about me, right? Which is what we see in couples as well. The vast majority of couples come in, they're pointing at the other person saying, something's wrong with my partner, fix them, right? Yeah. Um, And, you know, through a lot of the work that I do specifically around understanding and healing from codependent tendencies that I believe we all have. Um, there, For many people, there's this like intrinsic belief that if I've done something bad, that means I am bad. Right. And they are completely coupled together, right? So my ego is actually not strong enough to uncouple those two beliefs. So ipso facto, like it's not possible for me to take responsibility because there's too much shame that comes up and consumes me when I actually step into, yeah, I did this thing, I apologize, right? And did something bad, said in air quotes, right? I mean, it could be something as simple as like, you hurt somebody's feelings and you didn't mean to do it, but it doesn't matter. Your ego is completely defended against that because if you admitted that, it would somehow mean that there's something defective about you, something's wrong with you. And I I do believe that a lot of this has to do with um, like shame-based parenting, right? Like so many of us, and it's not to place blame, but so many of us are raised in a very shame-based way. The generation before us was very much raised in a shame-based way. Um, I mean, look, we're starting to change that now and that's great. But I think that at least I've discovered for myself personally and also in a lot of my clients, that coupled belief is one of the strongest ways uh, to to back yourself into that corner of being victimized. It's always somebody else's fault. I can't take responsibility uh, until you hit a wall where you realize maybe, hopefully, that you're the common denominator and then somehow, some way, you start to go, oh, shit, okay, I should probably start to take some some ownership of some stuff in my life. Right. And you have tips of how to do that in your book, I, I, I hope, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm, I'm hoping yeah. I'm going to learn some things too, you know, because um, that is hard to do. If your natural instinct is to be defensive or not take responsibility because you were blamed for something your whole life growing up, that's just your innate uh, way to deal with problems, right? That's your, your defense mm-hmm. mechanism, if you will. Mm-hmm. So how can someone go about bringing that awareness to themselves and taking that first step to change it? Is it, you know, just taking a deep breath and saying, whoa, let me take a step back and, and you know, pause and, and look at this? Or is there, you know, very tangible steps that someone can take to go in that direction? I think it's both. Um, you know, one of the tips that John gives in the book and that I've actually kind of adopted as my own mantra is going into any kind of conversation, really not just romantic partnership, right, but any relationship with this saying of try to understand before being understood. I love that. Yeah, and it's very that. simple and it's a it's a real way where you can attempt to through trying really hard keep yourself in a place of curiosity, right? Because we know that if you're in a place of judgment, curiosity cannot live, right? The curiosity and judgment cannot live in the same space. So even if it's hard, if I am trying my best to continually come back 
almost like a meditative practice, continually bring my mind back and my kind of emotional self back to a place of curiosity. I'm going to attempt to understand because understanding also doesn't mean you have to agree. It just means you're trying to understand, right? If I can attempt to do that first and then allow the being understood part to come secondarily, then I'm going to keep myself in a place of curiosity. I know for me, once I had that realization that I had that kind of coupled belief of like, I've done something bad, meaning I am bad, um, I started to pay attention to my body. So I tend to be a little bit more avoidant when it comes to the attachment spectrum. I tend to kind of put up walls. Um, I started noticing that whenever there was a conversation that my partner would bring to me, I would essentially dissociate. I almost like pull out of my body. I get very hot. My face gets very hot. I cross my arms, right? Um, It's almost as if I'm watching myself. And in my mind, my mind chatter starts to sound a lot like, F this, F him. This relationship clearly doesn't work. He doesn't understand me. This is stupid. It's a lot less about like, you're an idiot to myself. And it's more like, clearly this is why the relationship shouldn't work or isn't going to work. And I do that as a way to defend, right? Once I'm, I started I'm nodding, people can't see me nodding, but I'm nodding because I completely. You're like, yep, yep, yep. I feel like you and I are in, like, cl- you know, made from the same cloth because I can completely understand because I do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I think so many of us do. And so, what's that? What does that mean? I'm not present. I'm not actually in that conversation with my partner, right? And so, it took me a lot of self awareness work to get to the place where to say, oh, oh, these are all the things that I do, right? Um, and so that that would be step one. Step one would be just to pay attention to what happens to your body, to your mind when there's any kind of conflict that comes up, right? I'm very conflict avoidant too, which is a whole other thing. Um, and then what I started to do was say, okay, if I know that I dissociate, if I know that one of my things I do is I kind of feel like I leave my body a little bit, I need to stay in my body. So what tool can I do that will keep me in my body? Well, for me personally, I started doing this thing where I find myself digging my my hands in, whether it's to the seat, whether it's to my leg, like something where I feel tangibly, I can feel my body in my body, right? Right, right. That works for me. Um, another thing is the mantra, try to understand before being understood, try to understand. And I'm repeating <laughs> it like ad nauseum in my head. Right. My poor partner, it's like, I swear I'm listening to you. Even though in my head, I'm like, try to understand before being understood. Try to, you know. I'd be saying it so much. I wouldn't hear anything that they were saying. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Can you say that again? Repeat sorry, yourself. I was repeating my <laughs> mantra. Um, but, you know, little things like this, I mean, these are the tools in my toolbox, but I, I give these as like a starting place because I think it's really important that through kind of trial and error, you figure out what helps you stay present, get out of defensiveness, be there for your partner. Because at the bottom, at the end of the day, I want my partner to feel safe enough to come to me and say, hey, you hurt my feelings. This thing that happened, I didn't like the way you spoke to me. You know, we need to talk about this. Of course I want that. Right now in my non-activated emotional state, I can say I want that for my partner. And so whatever it is that I'm doing when I am activated, that's essentially telling him the opposite. It's not safe. You're not allowed to come to me and give me feedback or tell me these things. I need to somehow reconcile those two parts of myself because that's not the way that I want to show up and it's not the kind of relationship I want to have. Right. Right. And I think there's also, at least in my my experience, and I'm sure you can relate to this to some extent, in my experience, there's been a lot of couples that have come to therapy thinking, I'm going to get the therapist on my side. Yep. And almost to prove that I'm right right. and it is my spouse that's to blame. It is my partner that's to blame. And I'm going to prove it because I'm going to have this third party now 
to 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 finally get me to to understand my side of it. And I think there's always two sides of the coin, right? I mean, there probably is things that let's say I do mm-hmm. and my partner does and we're both at blame. And mm-hmm. we both have fed on this nasty defensiveness blaming cycle that has just revolved for so long that I don't even know if we even know who to, who is to blame anymore. We both get so activated so quickly when we argue that the blame just, just you know, we're hundred percent convinced it's his fault or it's her mm-hmm. fault or whatever. Do you notice that as well? That you know they're looking for that person to, you know, to, to side with them. Really, I mean, I, I can see it in yeah. friend groups too. You know, the the, you know, I'll go out with my friends and you know they'll hear my side of the story and he'll go with his friends and they'll hear his side of the story and our friends probably think so differently of 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 us because of that alone. Um, is that healthy to do to try and find people to relate with us, or is that only making that cycle worse? I think it depends on the people you're talking to. I mean, I would hope that you would have good friends. Like I have, in particular, one really good friend who knows us both, who will totally call me on my bullshit. It's not healthy if you're going to people who are just going to completely side with you. And this is why friends and family members are not therapists, by the way. Yes, because. They love you. They have an emotional investment in making sure that you're not uncomfortable, you're not hurt. They want to protect you. And so a lot of times, whether unconsciously or consciously, they're going to tell you what you want to hear. They're going to side with you, right? And that's not helpful. What's that saying where it's like there's there's always three sides? It's like your side, their side, and like what really happened? Right. right? <laughs> yes. I mean, that then that goes for every scenario. So I don't believe it can be helpful if you're just going to the same people that are just simply there to validate you and tell you that you're right. No. Um, I do believe we all need to have those people in our life that can gently hold up a mirror and say, well, actually, kind of sounded in that moment like you were being a little bitchy or whatever, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> and here's totally. why. Totally. Um, and that's not hard. It's not easy to hear, but it's. I think it's important and it's real, right? It's authentic. Um, and so I would say, so that's the first part. Um as far as the therapist citing, yeah, I mean, sometimes, again, I do believe this comes from like that, um, almost like this thing that the therapist is an expert. It, it's very parental. It's like it's like if I can get mom or dad, right, being the therapist to side with me, it's almost like you've got these two siblings that are, riv- you know, the rivalry going on and I want my parent to side with me. Um, I know for me as a therapist, many times with couples, um, and I'm like giving away secrets here, which is not, I guess, too much of a surprise, but there's some strategy in working with clients, right? And sometimes that strategy is actually like, okay, today in this moment, I'm going to side with this person. Hmm. And then today in this moment, I'm going to side with this person. And I'm going to strategically do that. And I'm going to see how that plays out because that will bring things into the room that we can play with, right? Sometimes I've even done it where I actually don't agree with this person, and I'll step in and I'll kind of energetically like align with them just to see where that takes us. Because then I can actually say, oh, I see that you're really desiring me to be on your side. I see that it's really important to you that I hear you and I believe your side of the story. Let's unpack that more. Why is that so important for you? Then it's not about who didn't do the dishes last night? That's actually irrelevant, right? <laughs> it's actually about, let's talk about you as this individual soul within this couple and why it is so important for you to feel validated by that external source. Because if that's something you struggle with, 
then clearly that's going to show up as an issue in probably all of your relationships, right? And that's something for you to work on. That's something for you to own. Um, and if you can, then holy shit, that's going to be a big breakthrough, I think, across the board for you. Right. So we're going to hang on to that thought and we're going to take yeah. a quick pause. Hi, I'm Dr. Kim, the parentologist. As a wife, mom, therapist, and all-around juggler like most of you, I lead a hectic life, and sometimes that means indulging in foods on the go that my stomach doesn't always agree with. Thankfully, Pepto-Bismol provides me fast and effective relief for all kinds of upset stomachs. Having a little too many guilty pleasures at a family barbecue or birthday celebration may lead to indigestion or heartburn, so I always keep Pepto on hand to get fast relief when I need it the most. Pepto-Bismol, use as directed and keep out of reach of children. Okay, so let's unpack that a little bit more. I have a couple questions. I'm I'm going to start with one because I have like all in my head and I just want to ask them all at once because yeah. I can't wait to hear your answers. But let's start with this. We all know about the honeymoon phase. Mm-hmm. You know, a relationship starts, you fall in love, you may or may not actually get married, but you're in a committed monogamous relationship. And then years go by, you know, life happens, big stressors happen. And then you get to the point where you're just arguing all the time. And you're contemplating divorce, mm-hmm. separation. How does a couple go from point A to point B? And how do we know when we've reached a point where there's no return? How mm. do we know when the blame cycle has happened so long and so often that you can't even be in the same room with your partner without being defensive, blaming them, resenting them, fighting with them? How do we know? I mean, maybe we've even tried professional help and it hasn't worked. Then what? So there's two things that are coming up for me. So the first thing I would say is, and again, this is me in a way really pushing against this, what I see as a very codependent way of being in relationships. The only thing that you can be responsible for is yourself, right? Period. Hard stop. So if you're in that kind of dynamic, now we're not talking about abusive, we're not talking about things where it's like it's time to end it because of somebody's safety, right? That's not what we're saying here. We're talking about, you know, again, using your example, you know, you're in this relationship, you've gotten down this path, it it feels very toxic, it feels like you guys can't get out of these cycles. Well, focus on you. Because here's the thing, whether or not this relationship actually ends up continuing to work or not has nothing to do with it. Whatever work you decide in this moment, you open your eyes on this day and you say, I am going to start working on owning my shit and changing my behavior, that's going to impact whatever relationship you end up being in. It's going to impact your relationship with your kids, with your family members, with your friends, right? So I would challenge somebody and say, okay, from this day forward, Notice when you're getting defensive. What is it about it that you're getting defensive on? Um, what part can you own, right? This is a very like 12-step tenant. It's like keeping your side of the street clean. It's the only thing that you can do. Radical responsibility of self, right? Now, that is not to say that it's somehow dismissing bad behavior or it's somehow minimizing what this person may or may not have done or said that was, you know, made you feel some sort of way. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is you can't change that person. The only thing that you can focus on is yourself. So in the interim, 
if you're in this place of like, I'm not sure, is it something I want to continue with, rather than keeping yourself in this almost like unproductive loop of continuing to analyze, should I go, should I stay, should I go, should I stay, why don't you 100% turn the focus around on yourself and start by saying, okay, this relationship is here, it's a mirror what am I going to learn about myself? How am I going to grow and evolve in this relationship because it will benefit me regardless of where this relationship goes? I find that with myself, but also with clients, when they completely consciously take the focus off of, should I stay? Should I go? What's wrong with this relationship? How can I fix this relationship? And they 100% turn it on themselves. They'll be surprised at the, like the and I'm putting this in air quotes for those that can't see me, the knowings that come up from within. Get out of your headspace and start getting into a place of like me, what can I own? What how can I evolve, right? So I think so many of us try to answer that question from a logical place. And and also what I would say is then let's say cut to 6 months down the road, you've been doing a lot of personal work, taking a lot of personal responsibility. Get your own therapist, right? Do your own work. Then in six months, if things have not shifted, if you're not seeing some kind of change in the way you and your partner show up together, when you do leave, you can do so knowing that you did personally everything that you could do. And that feels a lot better because then you you just you feel clean. You feel like I did it, right? I did my best. Um, there was no stone left unturned. So that that's kind of what I guess comes up for me in, in response to that question. I guess the other thing I would say, because I said there was two. John likes to use this term where he says, um, when people ask him, like, how do I know? He likes to talk about, like, are you, I'm going to kind of paraphrase, but he essentially says, like, are you breaking up with self? If being in this relationship is causing you to break up with yourself, then it's time to leave. Wow. You could think about that one for a while, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And I think that's great advice, even if we're not talking about relationships specifically, Mm -hmm. romantic relationships, parental relationships, even if we're just talking about focusing more on ourselves, period. Right. Right. As as a human being, you know, just who we present ourselves out to the world. Right. You know, when we meet someone at the store, when, when we make a new friend, you know, as a parent, you know, whatever it is that we're showing up for, it's how are we showing up? What kind of a person am I coming across as to everyone else in this world, even on Mm -hmm. Instagram or whatever the case is, you know, I think putting work into ourselves, I feel like there's always room for improvement. It's funny. It's like even something as silly as, and a lot of this comes through with like a lot of my work through Buddhist psychology, but even as something as simple as like, I got activated emotionally because somebody cut me off. My, my instant is like, F that guy. And you get into a rage and then when I've had a second for that like initial jolt, because it's a fear-based jolt to kind of pass through my system and my logical brain comes back online, I can go, Vanessa, you've probably cut off so many people in your life. Mostly unintentionally, right? But sometimes like you're driving a little bit like an asshole. You almost miss your exit and you're like, oh shit. And you kind of like you cut in too close and the person behind you has to slam on their brakes. We've all done it. And when I can do that and I can almost like check myself, it's amazing how fast that like anger at that other person goes away. And I'm like, oh yeah, okay, you're right. You know, you're right as in me. Like, yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's a really good tool sometimes to kind of keep yourself in check from constantly being like victim, victim, victim. 
you know. Exactly. That's true. That is true. Um, I want to kind of shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about love languages. Mm, yeah. How do love languages play a role in how successful a relationship is? If you and your partner have completely different love languages and you're not speaking them, you're speaking them for yourself because that's your love language. And again, maybe it's more internal and you have to kind of open your eyes and look at your own self first, like you've been saying. But if you're not really looking to fulfill your your partner's needs and their love language and speak that with them and make that effort for them, how how does that play a role in whether a relationship is successful and lasts or not? Yeah, I don't think it's as simple as saying like if they don't speak the same, then it's not going to work. I personally, I mean, look, I know love languages are not like some clinically kind of uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Like they're not like research based, right? I mean, when Gary Chapman wrote them, it really just came out of his own practice and what he started noticing. But there's a reason why they've caught on the way that they have, right? The way that I look at love languages is I almost call them like a cliff a cliff notes for needs, right? It's like needs 101. I love it. So many of us don't know how to articulate our needs. We don't know how to ask for our needs to be met. And I think love languages actually gave us language to do so. Um, And so what I have found personally, but also with clients, is that it's less about are you a match? And it's more about, again, are you willing to do things that are slightly uncomfortable for you in order to make your partner feel loved and like their needs are being met? Now, it's not my responsibility to meet all of my partner's needs and vice versa, right? Our partners are not, we we kind of go in again, throw that word codependency out there. We go out there thinking that we're going to meet somebody and they're just going to be this like need meeting machine that's going to make me feel reparented, by the way, all the time, like I belong, like I'm loved, like I'm worthy, right? When actually a lot of that work is our own to do for ourselves. But bottom line, like I was saying about my partner, I want him to feel like I'm a safe place for him to come and give me feedback. I also want him to feel loved. And if the way that I am showing him love is not making him feel loved, that's not about me. So taking the personal aspect out of it, it's more about like your, I mean, think about your child, like your kids have love languages too. It's very important to me that my kiddo feel loved. And if the way that I'm doing it isn't doing that, then hell yeah, I'm going to try to alter it. And I'm not going to take that personally because it's my kid. So why do we take it so personally when it's our partner? It doesn't say anything about you, right? So, and also I think the the secondary part to the research, this is actually the research part that I've been reading about recently where they're starting to show or they're starting to make correlations that they're thinking that if you have a really strong primary love language, they're starting to show that it potentially is something you did not get in childhood. Hmm, Interesting. So if your primary love language is words of affirmation, for example, you most likely did not get a lot of like verbal love, praise, affirmation, right? Right. So again, just another layer to depersonalize it. That has nothing to do with you. That has to do with them and their story and their upbringing. So John and I, John, his words of affirmation is like his hardcore number one, way up at the top. And I'm acts of service. We used to overlap on touch. But now that I'm a mom, touch is basically gone because I'm essentially touched out. I'm like, I don't anybody touch me. <laughs> Everybody keep your hands to yourself. <laughs> I'm carrying on a toddler all the time. Like I have another body on my body at all time. Please don't touch me. <laughs> Again, laughing because I can kind of pretend relate to that. I think every <laughs> woman I know who's a mother can relate to this feeling, right? I'm actually, I'm like kind of currently writing like a book proposal around this concept because it's just like so prevalent. 
So I'm like, sorry about you, dude. Like I used to be touched. <laughs> now keep your hands to yourself. <laughs> but like words are really hard for me. There, it's really I'm 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 good at writing them. I can write them in a card. I can you know. But like looking someone in the eyes and in a vulnerable way, saying like this is what you mean to me and why. Oh, it makes me sweat just thinking about it. I'm so not good at it. Um, and again, vice versa. He's he doesn't think that way. He doesn't think to like do things for me that make my life easier as a way to show me he loves me. As unsexy as it is, what I have realized because again, it's important to me that my partner feel loved. It doesn't matter actually how uncomfortable it is for me. What's a little discomfort in relationship to knowing he feels loved? Right. I have a alarm on my phone that goes off like every three days that just says John words. <laughs> wow, that's fantastic. That's a great I know. It's like very like- not sexy, <laughs> but it's like I have to remind myself because it doesn't come naturally for me. And that's okay. That's never going to change. But I want to remind myself so that I'm like, oh God, all right, I got to give him words today. It's really hard, but I'm going to do it. And I will throughout that day make a point to to do the, the thing, you know? And every time I do, I mean, it lights him up and it fills him up for days. Uh, and so I get the value, the, you know, the value return in that. But um, I guess that's like a long-winded way to say, I don't think it means that it's impossible. I just think it means that like, you got to do a little work. And that's a big misconception. We talk about that in the book, right? That relationships don't take a lot of work. You know, um, one of the chapters in our book is titled Happily Ever After is Bullshit. I saw you know, that. Yep. It's like we we only ever see in rom-coms and Disney movies, we only ever see the romantic falling, quote unquote, falling in love part. We don't actually see the relationship itself. You know, the Disney movies always end at the wedding. We don't ever see Cinderella five years in screaming at Prince Charming to pick up his socks for the 50th time that week, right? Like we don't see that part. So suddenly when we're in that, we think there's something wrong with us. No, that's just what relationships look like. And none of us know how to do it because we've never been taught. Right. It's hard. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of like getting out of your own ego. Um, and and to think it any other, you know, any other way is I, I think silly. And it it kind of cuts our potential off, I think, for what relationships could be. Yeah. And I, I think that um, in my own personal experience and clients I've seen in the past, I think we're always, <clears throat> I shouldn't say always, it's all, not all or nothing, but there's a lot of times I believe that couples wait for the other person to make that first move, which is oh, why yeah. I love your book so much because, you know, let's say a couple's not having very much sex and the wife says, well, I don't want to have sex with him because... I'm not getting my emotional needs met. I don't feel safe. I don't feel loved. I don't feel respected. Mm-hmm. So, you know, anything physical is off the table. Mm-hmm. But then the husband saying, or the you know the partner saying, well, I'm I resent her. I don't you know love her very much right now because she's not giving me sex. And there's just like this revolving circle of blame, really, um, mm-hmm. that's happening where they're not they're both not budging because they both feel so strongly. Well, I'm not going to do this until he does this, or I'm going to do mm-hmm. this until she does this. And like you said, I feel like it's really hard to get out of that cycle, but to start with ourselves is just so genius, really. So we can get out of those cycles. You know, people say, well, how do I get there? And you just answer that question with your book. Yeah. You got to look at yourself. That's it. That's how you get there, you know? And sometimes, I mean, the sex thing is a little harder, um, but if if we weren't talking sex and we were talking about other kind of unhealthy cycles... A lot of times I would say to somebody in a couple, like, so what is holding you back from making the first step? Oh, is it ego? 
okay, well, that's cool, but let's just call it what it is. Like, is it pride? Because when we actually sit down and we have to look at ourselves like in the mirror or like a therapist is looking back at us saying, okay, cool, it's ego. As long as you're willing to look me in the face right now and say it's your ego. Because for a lot of us, it's like, that feels so gross. Like when we admit it's just my ego and I'm digging my heels in, you're like, oh, well, that that doesn't, it feels very childlike, right? Um, I'm not blaming. I mean, we all do it, but when you're able to admit I'm not doing it because of my ego. I'm not doing it out of pride. Um, And you say like, well, somebody has to take the first step. So if we're both in our very adolescent toddler, like honestly, mentality of me and mine, arms crossed, I'm not going to do it. Okay. Well, then let's just call it now. Let's just save ourselves thousands of dollars in couples therapy Let's just save ourselves hours and hours of fighting because if both of y'all are digging in your heels and saying, no, I want to stay in my I'm right adolescent arm, cool, then let's just call it a day. Right. And I've actually said that to clients. I'm like, I'm not interested in having these kind of conversations. I'm only interested in working with clients and with couples who are like, again, radical responsibility. I don't want to hear about the finger pointing. I don't give a shit about what they did or didn't do. I really don't. I don't care. It's boring. I don't want to hear about it. And I'm not trying to be mean, but it's more like that's not going to move the needle. The only thing that's going to move the needle is if you're willing to go, oh, shit. Yep. My ego's running the show. It's fucking uncomfortable and vulnerable, but damn it, I'm going to step out of my ego and take the first step. I'm Regardless of how it's received. Mm, good point. Even if they don't reiterate or, or or come back to you with it, it doesn't matter. You're not doing it for them. You're doing it for you. That's the big part, right? Like it's not, I'm going to do it in order. It's not this like, um, you know, again, it's like this very transactional way that we go into relationships. I give to you, so you have to give to me. Because you love me, you owe me this thing. No, they don't. No, they don't. Nobody owes you anything. You're all grownups. We're all our own sovereign being. You do for you, they do for them. You come together and that relationship should really be a cherry on a Sunday. It's not the whole Sunday. And that I think is, again, it's like it's upbringing, it's society, it's how we're taught that relationships should look. And I think for a lot of changing in relationships really needs to come from like, we want to actually challenge the structure that we've been told relationships should look like. And if you're really willing to do like that kind of work, then holy shit, there can be a lot of shifts, but both people have to be really on board. I love it. Oh my goodness. This is going to help so many people. And your book is going to help so many people. Where can people buy it and where can people find you um, to learn more and um, get more information from? I know you'll also do, um, you know, some other work. So if you want to share that too, um, you know, where, where can people find more um, about you? Yeah. So the book is wide. So Amazon, Target, all the places, uh, you know, indie bookstores. Um, And then I'm on Instagram as Vanessa S. Bennett. Um, I'm on TikTok actually as the Coda Yoda. (laughs) Um, And then my website, VanessaBennett.com. Yeah. I do multiple retreats a year, uh, a lot of online workshops, um, and just trying to do my best to like put this out there, you know, as much as I can. I mean, I would say the crux of what I talk a lot about is is really moving from codependent ways of being in relationships to more interdependency and what that looks like. Um, and so mostly that's what you'll hear me kind of blabbering on about. But if you're you're interested in breaking a lot of those cycles, then I'm probably if you're interested and you also respect the like New York in your face no sugarcoating kind of approach, then I'm probably your girl. But <laughs> if that makes you uncomfortable, then 
I'd probably not. Maybe not. <laughs> and you also have your own podcast. Will you share what that is? Please? I do. Yeah. So my my best girlfriend and colleague, um, it's called Cheaper Than Therapy. And it's it's really more so my background is actually in depth psychology. So I come from a Jungian background, so as does she. And so a lot of our podcast is an inter kind of interweaving, if you will, of like spiritual psychology, Jungian psychology. We kind of go more into like the soul, the collective. It's a lot less of like the behavioral aspect that I feel like we see so often on Instagram because it makes for like pretty pithy infographics. Right. Um, and we we tend to kind of like mull over some of the more existential stuff. So if you like to nerd out on things, then that's definitely the podcast for you. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, thank you. You have so many great things going on and you were just a wealth of wisdom. So thanks for sharing um, some of that today with us. And I hope, like I said, this helps, you know, people out there that are struggling in their own relationships. And I, I hope so. they start working on themselves. Yeah, I know I am. I'm, <laughs> I'm so motivated. The book is in my cart. I'm going to order it today as soon as we get offline and I'm going to start reading it. So I think, Love you it. know, that whether you're struggling or not, I, I think it's still a good place to start just for your own human existence anyway. Agreed. Thank you so much, Kim, for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining me today. I cannot wait for you to listen to more episodes. If you are a new listener, I recommend starting at my best of year one episode first. Then make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. And when you love an episode, please leave a review. And if you want to stay connected between episodes, please visit me on social media at The Parentologist and on my blog at theparentologist.com. This podcast is not intended to be a replacement for therapy. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call 911.